Well, I want to begin this morning by just uh, thanking this congregation for uh, inviting us uh, this past week to be with you as uh, we candidate for this uh, position. And um, all of the wonderful things that we have heard uh, about this church and that we have learned uh, from afar and a little bit closer as we visited here before uh, have been absolutely confirmed um, to us in our visit this week. Um, this is, uh, this is an amazing place and, and, uh, and for those of you, you that are part of the, this, this church body need to truly be thankful for what the Lord is doing, uh, in this church. And it's, uh, it's our pleasure to be here. We've gotten to meet a lot of you and I'm not very good with names. So I know I've met a lot of you already and I recognize faces, but I don't always remember names. And, uh, so anyway, but we have just, uh, felt very welcomed and, uh, encouraged by our visit and, uh, and we're glad to be here. So, uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. I've had the, had the privilege of um, preaching through a number of the Psalms uh, over the last several months in in, uh, in our church that I'm serving at now, and uh, this has been one of my favorite uh, of the Psalms. That um, that God has inspired and revealed to His people. Many of you may know Martin Luther. We sang his great hymn, uh, "A Mighty Fortress Is Our God." This morning, uh, Martin Luther was saved as a result of his study of the Book of Romans and the Psalms. And Psalm 46 was his favorite psalm. Uh, as you know, Luther was instrumental in God's hands in bringing about the reformation of the church. And things did not always go well with that enterprise. And uh, Luther often would get discouraged with uh, the challenges that he faced in bringing about reformation to the church. And, and when those moments of discouragement would take place, he would grab his friend, Melanchthon was his name, and he would say to Melanchthon, let's sing Psalm 46 together. And they would sit down and they would sing Psalm 46. And because of his great love for this psalm, eventually it became one of the most well or most widely sung psalms during the Reformation. If you have a small view of God, meditating on this psalm will enlarge it. You will encounter a God in this psalm, a God that has power beyond compare. You will find in this psalm a judge who is not to be trifled with. You will find there a God who is a wellspring, who is the wellspring of all strength, of all power for those who take refuge in Him. 
This is a psalm that pictures God as being sovereign over all the nations of the earth. He is one who will conquer all evil and will bring peace to this weary world. Psalm 46 is a call to believers to cease from their fears, to cease from their anxieties, and to take refuge in God. It's also a call to unbelievers to cease striving against God, to acknowledge His glory, to acknowledge His Lordship, and to embrace Him through Christ for their salvation. What we see in this psalm is two movements. The first movement is found in verses 1 through 7. It is a call to put confidence in God. It's a call to put confidence in God. The second movement of the psalm takes place in verses 8 through 11. And this is a call to all who might doubt God, both to believers and unbelievers, that they would turn to God, that they would repent of their sin and anxiety, and they, they would acknowledge God truly as He is. So you do have an outline um, for you in the bulletin this morning. There's some fill in the blanks. And uh, and so I will try to remember to get you to fill in those blanks as I walk through this this morning. And we'll begin with that first movement, verses 1 through 7, a call to put confidence in God, a, a call to put confidence in God. Now, many of the Psalms are, are written... In a historical context, and some scholars are, are uncertain as to what historical context may be the backdrop for Psalm 46, but I believe that it is the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians in 701 B.C., and at that time, uh, the king of the Assyrians was a man by the name of Sennacherib, and he ruled the Assyrian Empire at the time when Hezekiah was the king of Judah. And you can read about the events surrounding the siege of Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37 if you want some backdrop for those events. But let me summarize a few important things. At this time, the Assyrians had essentially wiped out every nation that they came in contact with. Up until this point in history, there was no nation, no empire that had the kind of power and force that the Assyrians did. They were literally the most powerful nation in the history of the world at that time and point. Nations feared and trembled before them as they wiped out every uh, city, every countryside, every village that they came in contact with. People feared this nation. 
And they had already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. As you recall, uh, the kingdom of Israel was divided into the northern uh, portion, which retained the name Israel, and the southern kingdom, which took on the name Judah. The northern uh, nation of Israel had already been conquered. And now they were coming for Judah. Now they were coming for Jerusalem, the capital city of the nation. And they sent an emissary from the kingdom to come to Jerusalem and to mock the Jerusalem, uh, the citizens of Jerusalem, but more importantly, to mock their God, who is called Yahweh, the God of Israel. And this emissary came to the city walls and he began to shout out and he began to say that, you know, your God, your God is no different than any of the other gods of the other nations. Your God has no power. Your God is not going to save you when we wipe you out. Now, of course, we'll learn in a moment that was a huge mistake on the part of the Assyrians. But Sennacherib sent a letter to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, essentially threatening him with the same words that his messenger laid out before the citizens. And when Hezekiah got this letter, he did something very important. He got on his knees and he laid the letter out before him and he prayed to God for help. And I believe that Psalm 46 is a call to the citizens of Jerusalem to turn to God, to acknowledge God as their refuge in the midst of the storm that they were facing, in the midst of the threats of assault that the Israelites were facing. It is a call, Psalm 46 is a call to put confidence in God. And in the first section of this psalm, as we see this call to put confidence in God, we're going to see that it's based on three truths about who God is and what He does. And the first of these things is in verses 1 through 3, which is simply this, God is our protector. God is our protector. Notice what the psalmist says. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That sets the stage for everything else that's going to be said in this psalm. What is a refuge? A refuge is a shelter that that someone goes under when they are being assaulted by by a storm or, or when they are under attack. God is our refuge. When the psalmist says that God is our strength, the thing that we need to understand, especially when we face situations in in our lives in which we are under assault, where we feel attacked by the enemy, where we face adversity that we can't handle. We have to recognize that, that we are weak. But God is strong. That we are vulnerable. 
But God is a wellspring of strength and power, and we can take refuge in Him. The word trouble in this word is a, a word that means to be in a tight confinement. It's, it's to be in a rock, between a rock and a hard place, so to speak. And that's where the Jerusalem, the citizens of Jerusalem found themselves as they were surrounded by the Assyrian army. They had no place to go. If they tried to escape Jerusalem, their lives would be threatened. There was no escape. They were stuck. Any attempt to leave the city would mean certain death. And as the Assyrian army uh, closed in around them, they quickly understood that only a miracle of God could save them. And it is in that context that we need to note the confidence of the psalmist. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. In trouble. The word help here is used several times in this psalm, and it is a word that is often used in the Psalms to speak of, of, of desperate cries to God. God, we need your help. Now, now the thing to understand about this word, it's not as if, you know, well, you know, I can, I can face life's troubles a little bit on my own, and I just need a little bit of supplemental help from God to get me through. No, that's not what the word means. The word means is that you have no no strength, you are completely weak, and that apart from God, you can do nothing. Just as Jesus says to his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. This word has the idea that, that, that only God can do for you what you can never do for yourself. So bear that in mind as you think about this word help. And so note the confidence, verse 2, Therefore we will not fear. And then look at the description that is given in in, in verses 2 and 3. Though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, if all these things happen, still we will not fear. Now this is interesting language that the psalmist is using here. And it draws upon the worst possible images of catastrophe that you could imagine. Mountains slipping into the heart of the sea? Mountains quaking in fear at at the swelling pride of ocean waters overwhelming them? Uh, It's interesting the sort of illusions that this psalm has. If you think about, for example, the creation account in Genesis 1, it talks about how the dry land and, and the mountains emerged out of a watery mass when God created those landforms. 
But then when you look a few chapters later at the flood, at Noah's flood, you see the opposite. You see almost the undoing of creation in which the waters now overwhelm the mountains and they crumble into the heart of the sea. And we'll see later on in in, uh, in verse six that there's some imagery here that that is being used that alludes to the kind of experience or the kind of sense of fear and anxiety and and overwhelming uh, uh, catastrophe that comes in the midst of war. There may be some veterans here this morning that have served in the wars of our nation, and you might understand what that is like. This is the experience of the people of Jerusalem. There is an image of the undoing of creation. Water swallowing up mountains in a watery cataclysm. But then we move to the next image, or the next um, uh, aspect of God's character in verses 4 and 5. God is our provider. Okay, God is not only our protector, but He is our provider. Notice the contrast here. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. Notice the contrast between these waters in verses uh, 2 and 3 that roar and foam and cause mountains to quake. And now you have this, this image of these peaceful waters, these placid waters, these streams. I'm reminded of the of the similar images that you find earlier in the psalm, such as Psalm 23, where where where, where believers are are talking. You know, the psalmist David talks about about the still waters that God, as our shepherd, leads us to as His sheep, where we find refreshment. We see the same thing. For example, just turn a few pages early to Psalm 46. Or excuse me, Psalm 42, where it says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Right? God Himself is the source of, of spiritual refreshment. And, and He calls us to come to Him. To experience refreshing in the midst of adversity. The, the image even goes beyond that. You had this image of water flowing through a, through the city of Jerusalem. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But, but I'm thinking even beyond that. And I think this image alludes to a grander, a more cosmic picture of God as the source of spiritual refreshment. If you go to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 1, it talks about the water of life that flows from the very throne of God and, and becomes the source of healing for the nations and for our souls. If you want true refreshment for your weary, tired, anxious soul, drink 
of the waters of life that come from the God of the universe, that come from Christ Himself. It says, those who thirst, come to Me. I will give you eternal life, water from an eternal fountain of life. Look at what this results in. God is in the midst of her and she will not be moved. Now I want you to go back to the historic context here. We have this image of this water flowing through the city of God where God makes His holy dwelling place, the the Most High God. This is where His dwelling place was centered among His people. And the thing that it's important to understand, if, if our historical context is correct, water is essential for any city. Any ancient city, uh, if it was to be successful, needed to be built around a water source. And even throughout history, we've seen that, that great cities are always built near water sources. And so water was essential to the life and the sustenance of a, of a city. And for Jerusalem, that water source was called the Gihon Spring. And what is interesting is that during this time frame, as uh, the Judeans recognized that the, the Assyrians were gaining the ascendancy, they were gaining power, and, and that they had already conquered the northern kingdom and they were next, they needed to prepare themselves. And so we learned that Hezekiah built a tunnel to channel uh, the water from the Gihon Spring to inside the city walls of Jerusalem. And if you've ever been to Israel, I had the opportunity to be there a few years ago. And that that spring is still there. And the tunnel that Hezekiah built is also still there. And it pulls water from the spring, from the outside of the city walls, into the inside of the city walls. And it dumps into what's called the Pool of Siloam, a place where Jesus healed someone in his ministry and uh, and he built this tunnel through solid rock 1800 feet to give you an idea that's the size of six football fields and both sides but two teams worked together and they and they they with just hand tools picks and axes built this tunnel 1800 feet long through solid rock and it, and it forms a kind of s curve and it and it comes together in the center and it is one of the great engineering marvels of the ancient world. And even archaeologists today have no idea how they figured out how to build this thing. And I've been through there. You can walk through it and the spring water just goes straight through, right through it. Thousands of years old. And so God allowed Hezekiah to provide for the city. And so you can see how some of this imagery would mean something very powerful to them. The point is, is that God provides for our needs. And please understand that, that God doesn't just provide for our spiritual needs. He provides for our physical needs as well.
And the result of this is that they will not be moved. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. I love this image of we will not be moved because contrast that with all of the the craziness that's going on in verses 2 and 3. You've got these tumultuous waters crumbling mountains and bringing them down in the heart of the sea. And yet here is God that is in the midst of his people, in the midst of the city, where, where destruction and mayhem is taking place. Mountains are being destroyed and crumbling into the sea. And here is this rock. This unmovable rock that is God himself. And when we take refuge in that rock, it doesn't matter what is going on in our lives. It doesn't matter how much our world might be falling apart around us. God is a rock. An unmovable rock. And when we hide ourselves in him, we will be unmoved. Notice that he says that help will come in the morning, when the morning dawns. You ever notice that when you're going through a a deep struggle in your life, when you've got a crisis that you're facing, that a lot of times it's in the middle of the night when things seem to be the worst? You wake up in the middle of the night and suddenly a panic comes over you and you don't know how in the world your situation is going to be resolved. And you pray out to God in desperation and you're not sure what He's going to do and you're in a panic. And then morning comes. And oftentimes it just seems that God just eases our minds. The sun rises. We get a picture of the light that God shines into our darkness. It reminds me of that wonderful passage in Lamentations. And if anyone faced a dark world, it was Jeremiah. And we're all familiar with this wonderful passage. It's Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, where it says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. And then I love this. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. And we learn that every morning, every new day, that we place our faith in Christ through our great God. Now number three, and a third characteristic of God that we come to see in this passage is that God is our conqueror. God is our conqueror in verses 6 and 7. Notice what it says. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Now I want you to notice something very interesting. Now you're not going to know, you're not going to, you wouldn't know this just by reading your English 
Bibles. But I want you to notice something important. If you look at verse 2, in the New American Standard, we read, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, that word slip is the same word as the word tottered in verse 6. That's important. The word roar in verse 3, though it's water's roar, is the same word in verse 6 that is translated uproar. The nations made an uproar. Okay, now that is interesting. Because what that tells us is that the psalmist is making a connection to these sort of cosmic images of catastrophe to what is happening in their real lives in terms of the Assyrian army wreaking destruction upon the nations. Okay, so the nations made an uproar and the kingdoms tottered. In other words... Uh, it, it is the nations that are, are associated with these mountains that quake in fear uh, with this cataclysmic flood of water that is the Assyrian nation that is getting ready to overwhelm them in a flood of destruction. Right? And so these kingdoms that are tottering are like the mountains slipping into the heart of the sea. Right, and this is what they are facing. Okay? But they don't need to fear. Again, they don't need to fear. We don't need to fear when we face that kind of catastrophic crisis in our lives. Why? Because look at the second part of verse 6. He, that is God, Yahweh, Raised his voice and the earth melted. Now there is a lot to unpack in that little short portion of this verse. And let's go back to to the historical context. We understand that historically the Assyrians made this threat upon Jerusalem, but they were not successful. Because we read in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 36, that the angel of the Lord, in the middle of the night, have you, probably at the, the peak of the fears and anxieties of the, of the Jerusalemites, not knowing when their city would be destroyed and overrun by the Assyrian army. In the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord came and struck the Assyrian army. So the, in the morning, when everyone awoke, they looked across a silent landscape of death in which corpses lied all around the city of dead soldiers. A hundred and eighty-five thousand soldiers dead in one night. 
God melted the Assyrian army. It's interesting that the the Greek historian Herodotus uh, draws attention to this incident in history, and, and he claims that it was mice or rats or something that brought the plague uh, to the to the army. That's how uh, you know. But when, when you're trying to understand a supernatural event, what are you going to go to? You've got to try to come up with some explanation. But that is highly unlikely. This was a supernatural event. The entire army of the Assyrians decimated in one fell word by the God of the universe. You know, it reminds me of that incident in Mark chapter 4. Verses 35 through 41, when Jesus had been preaching all day and he was with his disciples and Jesus was exhausted. This gives us a glimpse into his humanity. And he got on a boat and he fell asleep. And as he fell asleep, a storm arose on the Sea of Galilee. He was in the boat with his disciples. And this storm, the waves are crashing, right? The the boat's like this little mountain, right? (laughs) You know, and it's slipping into the heart of the sea. And, And the waves are crashing over this thing. And the disciples are fearing for their lives. And they shake Jesus awake and they're incredulous. Jesus, can't you see that we're ready to perish? Jesus calmly stands up in the boat. He wasn't worried about the boat rocking him out of there. And he just looked at the waves and the wind. And he said, peace. Be still. And suddenly the sea became like glass. And it became so quiet, you could hear a pin drop. And what is fascinating about that incident is that the fear of the disciples, the fear of death, suddenly transformed itself into a different kind of fear. This wasn't a fear of death that they were now being confronted with. This was a fear of the Lord. And they looked at one another, their mouths gaping open. And they said, What kind of man is this? That the wind and the waves obey him. Folks, do you understand? That that's the kind of God we serve. That when we cry out to Him with one word, He can relieve all fears. He can confront all enemies. He can resolve every crisis that you face. Because that's who He is. God conquers all our enemies. He conquers all our fears, all of our misgivings, simply by a word. His power is absolutely unmatched by anything that we will ever encounter in this universe. All power is His power. 
All strength is His strength. All authority is His authority. But I want you to know something else. This image of the melting of the earth alludes to something even greater than than the immediate context. Because I believe this is alluding to an event that is even far more, far more reaching than the Assyrians destroying Jerusalem. This, I believe, alludes to uh, the judgment that will one day come upon this world that is cursed with sin. In which God truly will literally melt this world and the entire universe with a word. We read about it in Second Peter chapter 3 in which uh, the apostle tells us that God will bring about intense heat that will melt the elements and reduce the entire universe, the earth included, to ashes. But here's the great part of that story. Out of those ashes, God will reform, recreate the world and the universe into what we learn is called the new heavens and the new earth. And let me tell you, when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, those who have placed their faith in Christ, those who have found their refuge in God, you will enter into a glorious place where all fears are relieved, where there There will no longer be a curse. There will no longer be any crises that we will ever face because we will be consumed by the wonder of God's glory. And when we consider that reality, it leads us to the second part of this psalm, the last part of it in verses 8 through 11. When you begin to contemplate just who God really is, it puts a demand upon your life. It's a, it becomes a call, and we see this in verses 8 through 11. It is a call to turn to God. Right, it, it is a, it is a call to stop and gaze upon the wonder of God and to turn from your wicked ways if you are an unbeliever and to turn from all of your worry as a believer and turn to this awesome God. It's a call to repent. It's a call to stop striving. Against God, it's a call to stop doubting God's goodness and power in your life. And we see this in two movements in verses 8 through 9. We're called to behold the judgment of God. We're called to behold the judgment of God. And notice it's a call to the whole world. Come, behold the works of the Lord. This is a call to everyone. Come, behold the works of the Lord. And what works is he talking about? Behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. In other words, desolations here means to lay waste. It is to wreak complete havoc upon the earth. 
I believe that ultimately this alludes to the desolations that are planned at the end of the age in, in what the Bible describes as the great time of tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, and, the, and that is a series of judgments that God will pour out upon this evil world. And at the culmination of those judgments, you will see the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament return a second time to this world with the armies of heaven together with him. And he will enter into battle with the remaining nations that have aligned themselves against God and his people. And we read about it in places like Ezekiel and Revelation, in which we read of the battle of Armageddon, right? And God will use that final battle to bring desolations to the world. And as verse 9 indicates to us, He makes wars to cease to the end of the world. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. And we learn that through this just war, God, Christ, will bring peace to this world. We see this same, I, I believe the psalmist is alluding to the kind of imagery, for example, that we read in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, in which the Messiah is said that He will judge between the nations and He will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Because that will be the war to end all wars. And only God can do that. Secondly, and finally, we see in verses 10 through 11, a call to embrace the glory of God. And as Pastor Chris mentioned earlier this morning in the reading of this scripture, we see God himself speak in verse 10. And he, he speaks to all people and he says, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This is a call for unbelievers to cease their striving against God before it is too late. Stop. Right now. If you're here this morning and you are striving against God, you need to stop. I beg of you, stop striving against God. Repent of your sin. 
and come to God and embrace the only provision that He has made for you, the only provision of salvation that He has made for you, and that is through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, through His death and resurrection on the cross. He has made every provision for you to receive His grace, to receive His pardon. And to experience His glory, His joy, His deep satisfaction for your soul. Do not strive against God. And know this, know that He is God. He will be exalted. He will be exalted among the nations and throughout the earth and he will have his glory secondly it is for the believer cease striving and know that I am God it is a call to the believer to cease from their anxiety because it is not beholden for us as believers to embrace Such an amazing God to live our lives with fear and anxiety. To wrestle with uncertainty and doubt. This is a call for us to, to, yeah, we see the storm all around us. We see the raging waves. We see the crumbling mountains. We see our whole world falling apart. But it's a call for us to calm down, take a chill pill, (laughs) relax. I am God. I am in control. I know what I'm doing. And you don't need to worry. I am a good and powerful God. I have a good and powerful plan. I will execute that plan and you need to trust me. If God is in control of the broad span of history and of nations and with a word can fell entire armies, do you not think that he can take care of your little problems and even your big ones? There's no need to fear any enemy, no need to fear the future, no need to fear any crisis that we might encounter in our lives. I love this line that we sang this morning from Luther's hymn. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, and he captured the imagery of Psalm 46 very well, because it pictures an undoing of the world, an undoing of creation, verses 2 and 3. We will not fear, Luther says, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. I want you to know one last refrain, or two, really two refrains. At the end of verse 7, 
or uh, the beginning of verse 7 and verse 11, where it speaks of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is with us. This, I believe, is another allusion to Isaiah, Isaiah seven fourteen, in which we learn that God will be with us in a very special way. Through Christ the Messiah, God with us, Emmanuel. That's what it means, God with us. And Christ has come to live in the hearts of those who take refuge in Him. And as a result, He becomes our protector, our provider, our conqueror. Jesus Christ is a mighty fortress. And we must take refuge in Him. We must trust in Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this wonderful psalm. Father, a psalm that calls us to look upon you as our great refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Father, when we turn to you, when we turn to Christ, and faithfully embrace Him as who He is and what He has done for us, Father, we have no need to fear. Father, even though the earth itself should, should undergo massive change, and we see the world that we live in going, undergoing massive changes, and they're not good. Father, if we should see the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, if we should see a cataclysm that is unheard of, Lord, we know we have a rock that we can find refuge in, and that rock will secure us. Father, He will protect us. He will provide for our every need. He will conquer every enemy and fear that we face. Lord, His name is Jesus Christ, and may we entrust our lives to Him and His care. And Father, if there is someone here this morning that has never done that, Father, if there is someone here this morning that needs to take stock of their life and realize that perhaps things are out of control and they need hope, they need pardon, they need forgiveness, May they turn this day to Jesus Christ, their only hope of salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.